Would you uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 as we read from God's holy word and meditate on it this morning. Paul, in something of the culmination of a long argument about the law and the spirit and how Christians relate to God, summarizes it with this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So reads the word of the living God. Let's go to him one more time in prayer. Father, your people are here gathered to hear your voice. We want to be conformed to the image of our elder brother, Christ. We want to put off sin, grow in holiness, love each other, and love you more. God, more than anything, we want you. We want to see you and worship you. So help us to do that, we pray. Feeble as we are, send your spirit into our hearts that we might cry out to you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My... Cell phone is filled with pictures of only one little boy. Only one little boy has seen me in every possible moment of life, spitting mad, crying, weeping, overjoyed. Only one little boy lives in my house and eats my food. Only one little boy feels free to belch on me, to sneeze on me, and one time to take his finger and put it in his mouth and take that finger and put it in my ear. Only one little boy has that kind of access, and only one little boy calls me papi. Who do you think it is? It's my son, right? Of course. Wouldn't it be weird if the answer to that question was your son? Of course it would, right? Because of this very basic point that we relate differently to people who are inside of our family than people who are outside of our family, don't we? But what if I took a little boy and adopted him into my family and he became my son? How then would I relate to him? Well, he would have all the rights and the privileges and the intimacy that are afforded being a son, wouldn't he? Christian, 
if you have been adopted by God, then you're in the family. And Paul wants you to know through this text that that means you get to talk to God like you're in the family. Meaning, because we've been adopted into God's family, Christians necessarily relate to God intimately like kids do to their dad, and that happens through spiritual adoption. And specifically, what Paul wants you to see in this text is that not only do you relate to God like you're somehow related to him, you get to relate to God like his own son, like Jesus does. Which means, in contrast, that it makes absolutely no sense to be a Christian who has a distant relationship with the Father. And unfortunately, I think there are many who do talk to God like that. To them, God is just an, an employer. He's a boss. He's the one who gives them rules and they follow them. So my hope as we look at this message this morning is that you would see just how earth-shattering and life-changing, how explosive the truth of the gospel is for how you relate to God. That because of Jesus Christ, you get to talk to God like his own son. And if you're wondering, how do I get a barometer for what my relationship with the Lord is like? I mean, just test your prayer life. What do your prayers sound like? Do they sound distant, like you're just talking to someone you're trying to get something from? Or do they sound like a child talking to their father? How do you talk to your heavenly father? Is he the 911 operator? Or do you talk to him like a dad? Have you been adopted by God and do you talk to him like it? That's Paul's burden in this passage. And to make this point, Paul is walking us really through all of redemptive history in order to make this point about adoption for the Galatian Christians. There's a sense in which this passage really does focus on the whole broad drama of everything that God is doing in redemptive history, but Paul doesn't leave it there. He, He makes it really personal. This is about you and your relationship with God here today. How do we get there? Well, let's let's get a little bit of a running start since you guys aren't in the series in Galatians. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Galatia because, to use his word, they are bewitched. Because there are people who have come into the church telling them that the only way that you can really relate to God rightly is through all of these rules that we used to have. And if you don't follow those rules, well, then you really don't have a relationship with God. You need to obey the law in order to be a Christian. And Paul says, no, 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 (laughs) that's not the gospel that I preach. I was with Jesus in the wilderness. I got the gospel straight from him. (laughs) That's not how this thing works. It is by grace through faith alone. No circumcision. Don't add anything else to it. Just believing in Jesus. That's the gospel. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is arguing that the law isn't the thing that gives you intimacy with God. It's, It's Christ. It is only through Christ that you get to have this kind of familiar, close access to God. The law was temporary, 
And only in Christ do we have intimacy with God through adoption. And if you want a definition for spiritual adoption, here's a definition for you. Adoption is the spiritual means by which God takes us from being distant strangers outside of his family and brings us into close, intimate fellowship as sons and daughters bought by the blood of Jesus to experience all the spiritual blessings of heaven. Literally, the word adoption, which is in this text, just means to put as a son. God puts us as sons. John Owen, the Puritan, said that by adoption, we have every spiritual privilege. My question to you as we approach this text this morning is, number one, have you been adopted by God? And then number two, has that changed anything about your life? Does it change the way that you relate to this God who made you and redeemed you and calls you his own? How do you talk to God? Do you talk to him like a son or something else? Now to show us exactly how this works, Paul is going to rehearse for us the steps of everyone's spiritual adoption. If, if you've been adopted by God, this is your story in three steps. The first being slavery. The first step in spiritual adoption is what we're like before we're adopted, our slavery before Christ. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, the picture that Paul is using here for the Galatians would have been a familiar one for them. He calls this kid that he's using as an illustration an heir, which implies that he's somewhat wealthy. He's got some money. And we see he's also got guardians and managers. His parents have paid for people to watch him and take care of him. So that means that he's before kind of the age of becoming a man, and he's being cared for by these guardians, these tutors. I remember there used to be this really horrible show uh, called My Super Sweet 16, where uh, 15-year-old girls would just turn into lava monsters on their 16th birthday, and they'd just spew insults at their parents because they didn't get the, the party that they wanted. And that's, that's like the messed up American version of a pa- rite of passage, right? Um, my, my wife's family is originally from Mexico. They do quinceañeras, right? That's the rite of passage in that culture, uh, Jewish culture, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. In Paul's day, they had a similar kind of rite of passage ceremony that would happen. It was called the Liberalia Festival. This is in Roman culture where young boys, 14, 17 years old would go. They would like turn in their kid toga. They would get an adult toga. They would take all their toys and leave them there. And their parents would cut their hair, which I'd sure there's lots of parents who are pumped about. Uh, the idea, though, is that it's just a rite of passage. And what Paul is saying is before that rite of passage, the child is really no different from a slave. Now, that might strike us as strange because when you think of like rich kid, you think of someone who's spoiled and his parents are doting on him. In the ancient Near East, it's a little bit different. In this context, you're thinking about a kid who's basically not useful to their parents until they grow up. And so the dad just doesn't want anything to have to do with him. He just hires people to take care of the kid and put him to bed and clothe him and feed him, do everything possible for him so that he doesn't have to worry about it. The idea is it's like boarding school, but just at your house, your teachers put you to bed and tuck you in. So the child heir is like a slave in that his relationship with his father is distant. 
boys and girls, imagine that it's like your teacher at school came home with you and they made all your meals and put you to bed. That's, that's what that's like. And Paul is using that imagery because he wants you to see that that's what life is like before coming to Christ for all of us. He broadens it. Look at verse three. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. There's some debate about what elementary principles means. In this passage, I think of it just like the rudiments, the ABCs, the introductory matters. For, for Jews, this would have been the Torah itself, the law. But for a Gentile person, this applies as well. It's just the conscience, the law of God written on their heart. They, they know what it means that God exists and that they're accountable to him, but they just don't have an intimate relationship with him. And so Paul is saying that before coming to Christ, all of us were like that. All of us related to God in this kind of distant way. He's still in charge, but he set tutors over us, like the law, for example. And there's one word that he uses to describe what that's like. He says it's that we were enslaved. Enslaved. Jesus says, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Have you practiced sin? That's all of us. We are born slaves. We are born distant from God. We are born outside of the home. A slave to sin and far from God. And I think this is characteristic for most people outside of the church, at least. The way they think about God, if they think about him, is that he's kind of like a tax collector. They just got to make sure to pay the dues every so often, do enough right things, and then he'll give something good back to them. He's a slot machine. Put in enough money, you get the good stuff out. Don't put in the money, maybe some bad stuff happens. I think that's how a lot of people think about God. And almost everyone that I've talked to who doesn't know the Lord thinks of themselves as really on the good side of that. (laughs) They're a good person, that God really is very happy with them. Either way, doesn't seem like God's your dad. Either way, it doesn't feel like there's a intimacy there, does it? A closeness of relationship. That's all of us before Christ. Paul calls it slavery. It is distant. It is cold. It is unfeeling. And that's not where God wants to leave us. It says... God, you're only as good as you make me feel how I want to feel. Which means that if you're here this morning and and rule following is the primary way that you relate to God, you're a slave. You don't know him as your father. You know what? I'll take it a step further because Jesus does. John chapter 8, Jesus says, you don't have God as your dad. You have Satan as your father. The world is your mother. Sin is your sister. Death is your brother. Hell is your home. And that's not where you want to be. And that's not where God wants to leave you either because Paul moves on from slavery to the second stage of spiritual adoption, which is substitution. Look at verse 4. But, I mean, just stop there. 
don't you love it when the Bible doesn't say and? (laughs) It's not what we deserve. It's what God does. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The emphasis here in the text is on a, a kind of exasperated sigh. Finally, it's come. This appointed day, this, this time, the, the time for becoming a man, for leaving behind the childish life and, and getting this full relationship with God. Finally, it's here. And in God's fullness of time, this is about maybe 4 B.C., because it was when he sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. There's a couple of things to note here. First, note that it's God sent forth his son. It's not God created his son. This is implying the deity of Christ. That Jesus was pre-existent. He existed before he was incarnate. God sent him. But then also notice it says born of a woman. That implies the virgin birth. Mary was that mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. He says, born of a woman, born under the law. I mean, just consider for a second what Jesus' relationship was like with the Father before the incarnation, before he came to earth. Think about it. Perfect joy. Absolute intimacy. Only just love and enjoyment for all of eternity past. Jesus literally says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Can't get more intimate than that, can you? So why did Jesus have to become like a slave? Why did he have to be born under the law? Verse 5, to redeem those. Who were under the law. The law maker becomes the law keeper so that law breakers could know the law giver. Jesus had to become a slave like us so he could be our substitute, both in life and in death. That's bound up in this word redeem. To redeem those who are under the law. It's, it's a word for buying someone from the slave market of sin. It's the idea of the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, his blood is the atonement. It is the payment that says these people can now come in. I've purchased them. I've bought them to come in to the family. And the effect is so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's why he went to the cross is so that you could be adopted. To be put as a son, meaning Jesus didn't die on the cross to pay for your sins and then leave you outside of the family. He died to bring you in. Jesus became like us to make us like himself. He became a slave so that we could be sons. So that our relationship with God would become like his. There's this wonderful song that we sing, His Robes for Mine. Do you guys sing that? You know it? He as though I, accursed and left alone, I as though he embraced and welcomed home.
there's a boy named Davian who was up for adoption for a number of years. His caseworker was a woman named Connie Going who cared for him throughout the whole of the process. He was a young boy, even into his teenage years, constantly looking for someone to adopt him, going from foster home to foster home. And he'd been born in prison. And uh, So she kept trying to get someone to adopt him that nobody would. Eventually she actually put him in the pulpit of a church <laughs> and he asked people to adopt him. That got picked up by local news and then national news. He's sitting on the view asking people to adopt him. So they get a bunch of requests come in and one by one, they all start falling through, falling through. Nobody adopts him. Until one day, he is adopted, but not by the person that he expected. He's adopted by his caseworker, Connie Going, the woman who had cared for him all this time. She brings him into her home and makes him legally her own son. And a news reporter came to their house a little after that and asked Connie about, she had uh, two biological kids and, and two adopted kids at that point. And said, is there a difference between the way that you relate to your biological children and your adopted children? And any of you who have adopted kids would answer the same way, I'm sure. She said, I only have sons. Believer, do you know that God has no grandchildren? God has no stepchildren. God has no distant relatives in his family. He only has sons. When Christ adopts you, when he brings you into the family through his blood, you become a son just like him. Not in every way, of course. I mean, it's not blasphemy, of course, but, but in Oh, so many glorious ways. You get to talk to God like he's your father. Jesus didn't die to make you a gardener in the house of God. <laughs> he died to make you a child. That's why John says, oh, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And it's almost like he can't even believe it. He just says, and so we are. <laughs> That's why J.I. Packer said this astounding statement, quote, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. Believer, do you know that? <laughs> do you believe that about yourself? That you're in the family? You're a son, you're a daughter. Friend, are you here and you don't know that? Or you know that you're outside of the family? Well, Paul is saying, listen, the adoption papers have been signed with blood. Just receive it. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to do anything. He's done everything. Just come into the family. Become a son. So that you can experience all the glorious privileges of being a son, which is the third stage of spiritual adoption. We move from slavery to substitution to glorious sonship. Uh, Paul wants us to ask the question, 
if it's true that we have been adopted by God, we're now in his family, how does that change things? In what way does that change the dynamic between me and God? He tells us, verse 6, and because you are sons, notice the tense change right now, it's true, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Note the Trinitarian implications here. The Father sends the Spirit of the Son. And he sends that Spirit, the very life of the Son, into our own hearts, such that we would cry out, the word meaning with like a loud voice, Abba, Father. Abba, Aramaic for Father, would be kind of like the, the word in the native tongue. Told you earlier, my son calls me papi. We speak Spanish at home. So it's like that term of endearment. And if you've heard a sermon on this before, it's likely that you've heard some version of this where people say, oh, Abba is, is like uh, daddy. I don't like that. That's weird to me. I never called my dad daddy, so I, I'm just, I don't do that. But to me, the uh, probably the closest equivalent word would just be dad. That's what I called my dad at least. Um, I can remember the first time that my dad got prostate cancer. He calls me up and explains to me what's going on. And my response was, okay, dad, what are we going to do? And it's like that kind of word. It's an intimate, personal kind of word. And that is how we get to talk to God. (laughs) And do you notice this is the same word that Jesus uses to talk to his father. You remember Mark chapter 14? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. In one of the greatest moments of agony in his life, he pulls out Abba. (laughs) Abba, Father, I know all things are possible for you. If at all possible, just take this cup from me but not my will, but yours be done. Do you see still totally submissive to the Father's will and yet such freedom of access? That's us. We get to talk to God like that. Believer, there is no temptation that is too hard that you cannot bring it to your heavenly Father. There is no sorrow that is too deep that he will not understand. There is no thought that enters your mind that God is unwilling to hear because he's your father and he's put you like his son. And yet I think there are still so many of us, this is me from time to time, who want to go back (laughs) to talking to God the old way. We're looking for some kind of fulfillment in our relationship with God, but just the wrong way by like me doing stuff and getting applause and attaboys from God. It reminds me of the other prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15? There's two of them. There's the one who comes back. He lives with the pigs. He comes back. Father receives him. But there's a second son, the elder son, you remember, right? He's out in the field. 
A servant comes and tells him what's going on. He starts fuming. So dad comes out and the text says, entreats him to come in. Do you remember what the son says? Listen, dad. (laughs) All these years, I have slaved for you. And you never gave me so much as like a little goat. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours shows back up, having devoured your whole estate with prostitutes, not to put too fine a point on it. When he shows back up, you slay the fat calf and throw him the biggest party in the world. Do you remember the father's response? My son, everything that I have is yours. Why are you talking to me like that? Is this how I taught you to talk to me? Like I'm just your boss. You just got to work and then I'll give you stuff. Everything that I have is yours. You're my son. So talk to me like it. (laughs) That's what Paul wants for the Galatians. Says verse 7 You're no longer a slave. You're not. (laughs) You're not a slave. You're, You're a son. Of course, there is a way in which we're slaves to God that we obey his will. Obviously, that's true. He still is in charge of our lives. But there is such a profound way in which we are not slaves anymore, but sons. And if a son, he says, then an heir through God, meaning there's an inheritance coming that is not for slaves and is for sons. You get written into the will. You get to inherit the whole estate because one day God is going to bring all of his glorified sons to himself and they're going to reign with Jesus Christ over this entire earth forever and be with him and in his presence intimately enjoying him forever. You're an heir through God. No longer a slave, not distant from the Father, but you have his spirit and you can plead with him like Jesus does. So friend, why would you go back to treating God like some kind of indifferent figure in your life. I'm not here trying to, you know, guilt anyone about their prayer life or something like that. I'm just saying, man, look at the riches that you have. (laughs) Look at the access that you've been given to the throne of heaven. That you can walk up to it just like a kid like a presidential kid strolling into the Oval Office. (laughs) That's you. Do you make use of it? Do you talk to him like a child? Talk to him like a son. A number of years ago, my wife found a post on Facebook that startled both of us. There's a young boy named Tommy who had just been born with microcephaly, which meant that his his skull was malformed. He wasn't going to have a full brain, probably be blind, have a number of other 
issues in his life. And his mother gave him up for adoption immediately after his birth and uh, did it through a Christian adoption agency. And so the Christian adoption agency immediately put out kind of an all points bulletin through social media. Who wants to adopt this kid? It's going to be hard. Here it is. And I mean, we didn't, we didn't have any kids at the time, but I mean, we didn't have any expectation that we could do that, but we couldn't just like let that pass. (laughs) So we sent an email back just being like, Hey, what's going on with Tommy? And we got a response the next day. And the response said, oh, don't worry about it. (laughs) Tommy's going to be taken care of because 3,000 people have already offered to adopt him. What kind of people (laughs) love like that, that they're willing to enter into that kind of hardship, that kind of long-term care. I'll tell you what kind. People who have been adopted by God and have known the love of the Father. And you want to know what that love is like? Jesus himself tells us in his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, he says, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and then check this out and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, if that weren't in the Bible, I might think it's blasphemy. (laughs) That God the Father loves us the way that he loves his own son. Brothers and sisters, the greatest glories of spiritual adoption are not in what you get, but in whose you are. And that should change everything about how you live. It should change everything about the friends that you have, the work that you do, the way that you talk to other people and relate to your family. But more than anything, it should change the way that you talk to God, shouldn't it? So talk to him like a father. Relate to him with that intimacy and that closeness. Go to him with whatever is on your heart. Robert Murray McChain, the uh, Scottish preacher, said, have the utmost frankness between you and God. Lay everything out there for him in your prayer life. Because he's your father. And he wants to hear from you. And if you're here this morning, and all of this sounds 100% alien to you, like I've never even come close to talking to God that way, I don't know anything about that life, the offer stands. (laughs) Jesus puts his arms out as the arms of the father to the crowds, and he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's inviting you in to be a part of the family. You don't have to stay outside on the porch. So would you? Would you come in?
Would you receive Christ as your brother and God as your father and know the infinite love of God? And then would you live a life of intimate fellowship with him for all of eternity? Will you embrace the love of your father? Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we marvel, Father, at the kindness that you show us. So undeserved and unprovoked by anything in us. And yet so natural to you. Because you're a father. You've always been a father. And you invite us to see you that way. So we come before you this morning with our burdens and our cares. I'm sure there are many, even as we heard in our prayer earlier, many who are suffering and struggling with loss and medical challenges. So many in this room, too, that we don't even know about. God, would you wrap your fatherly arms around your children this morning? Because you care for them. Be to them their God and they your people. Make us the kind of people who know you, who really know you. We spend much time on our knees before your throne because that's our home and that's our hope. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ that brings us into that kind of intimate fellowship with you. Consecrate us now even as we come before your table. Give us hearts that are contrite, eager to see your will done in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.